When I was in seminary, I took a couple of Greek classes, and one of the things I remember the professor saying, he said it all the time, he said, repetition is the mother of all learning. And it, to be honest, it may be the only thing I remember with those classes. Like, the whole thing was Greek to me. And so it was, I remember that. I remember him saying it, like, every day, because we were doing vocab and parsing and all this stuff, and he was like, you need, to, you need to just keep saying this over and over and write it down more and more times, because that's how you learn. You, you repeat things. You don't just hear it once. Hear it a bunch of times, and you might actually remember it. And the writer of Hebrews seems to get that. He seems to get the whole idea that repetition is the mother of all learning, because he's repeating the same things over and over. He says them in different ways. He kind of will, will focus on one aspect or the other. But through the whole book we've seen, like if you've been here the whole time, right, or, or most of the time, he, we've seen him saying, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. He just keeps coming back to that theme. It is the theme of the whole book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better than anything else. So don't turn away from him. Uh, keep your faith. Keep trusting. Keep believing. He's always better than anything else that you would pursue. And in this section, this kind of this middle section of the book, we've been talking about how Jesus is the better, specifically he's the better high priest. And as the high priest, he's the, he's the high priest of a better covenant. There's the old covenant with the law, and then there's the new covenant in Christ's blood. And so he's, what he's doing is... Every single week, like, he's really pointing out how much this new covenant is better because we have the ultimate high priest in Jesus. And in chapter 9, it's, it's more that stuff. It's more of the same thought, the repetition. Like, we need this truth. We need to be reminded of it. I need to be reminded that Jesus is better every week because between Sundays, it's really, really easy to drift and forget, pursue something else. And so he keeps coming back to this and just building on those arguments. And so in this passage, and we, we read verses 11 through 14, but the whole passage really starts in verse 1. He's talking about the old covenant, showing how it um, was inadequate, and pointing us to the new covenant. And, and as he does this, in, in the first section here, he starts talking about how they would worship in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place that God told Moses to build while they were in the wilderness to build this tent where God would meet with Moses and meet with his people and, and it would represent God's dwelling or tabernacling with his people. And then inside the tabernacle, inside this tent, there was a holy place and a most holy place. And so he starts talking about that. He starts talking about the articles in the holy place where the priests would go in and out all the time, always doing their work, always performing their duties. There was the table. There was a lamp stand. They always had to keep the lamp burning, um, keep oil in the lamp so that it was always burning, eternal flame. And they had the, uh, the, on the table they had the bread of the presence. So they put in there every week. The priests would eat the bread. They were communing. They were fellowshipping with God in the holy place. And then he says behind that but there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And in the most holy place you had the Ark of the Covenant. And it was that uh, it was kind of the footstool for the throne of God. And so you had the Ark of the Covenant. It was this box that's covered in gold with angels, statues of angels over it, and the mercy seat on top of it. That's where the priest would sprinkle blood to atone for the sins. And you had this Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had these um, artifacts that reminded them of God's faithfulness. You had the Ten Commandments, the tablets for the Ten Commandments. You had the staff that Aaron uh, had that had budded. They were trying to figure out who, where the priests were going to come from. And so they put all the staffs, 12 tribes of Israel put their staffs in there. And Aaron's staff budded overnight and then grew uh, almonds. Like it was just a stick and it grew that. So God said, this is the people, Levi, is where the priests are going to come. You had a jar of manna reminding them of God's faithfulness. And he starts walking through all these details of what was in the tabernacle and what was in the holy place and the most holy place. And then in verse 5 it says, um, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And I'm like, but what? <laughs> that was kind of a lot of details. I guess there's more. But then it's kind of this, let's just move on. 
And so then he starts talking about what they were doing. So the priests would go in every day and they would perform their duties. They would keep the oil in the lamp. They would take the bread. They would burn the incense. And then he said there was that curtain. And in the most holy place, no one could go in. Only the high priest once a year could go in there to make an atoning sacrifice for all the sins of people. No one was ever allowed. That curtain kept you from stumbling in there or walking in there. It kept, there was a barrier there. And so what he's doing is he's describing all this and kind of pointing out uh, what was happening in that tabernacle in the Old Covenant. He's making some observations about the Old Covenant to set it up as inferior to the New Covenant. To show how, Kai was talking about this last week, it's a shadow uh, of what was really to come. And so the Old Covenant through the law, here's, here's a couple of things that he's saying here. It seems like he's saying it was limited in its ability to grant us full access to God. There was, there, there was this tent of meeting, and in the holy place, only the priests could go in there. Like, not, not just anybody. You and I couldn't go in there. Only the priests from the tribe of Levi. And then there was the curtain that separated that from the most holy place, and no one could go in there except the one top guy, the high priest. And only once a year could he go in there. And so this whole old, old covenant through the law was kind of, one of the ways you describe it was limited access. There was a restricted access to God and his presence through the Old Covenant, it was kind of, kind of communicating that. That's kind of what it's speaking is you don't have access. You need, you need someone to go in there before, before God on your behalf because you don't have that kind of access. It was limited and it was restricted. In fact, if you look at verse 8 in this passage, it says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The way into the holy place is access to God. It's not yet open. And that's kind of the way that you could describe the old covenant through the law. Not yet. Access to God is coming, but it's not here yet. You have limited access. You have restricted access. Only the one person gets to go in there. And so it's a limit and a restriction is what the old covenant shows us. And the other thing that he seems to be saying is that the old covenant through the law was ineffective in meeting our biggest need. It it wasn't even... It wasn't even solving our ultimate problem because it wasn't meant to. It was pointing us to the solution for our ultimate problem. The old covenant through the law was ineffective in meeting our biggest need. What he's, what he's talking about here is all these ritualistic worship things that the priests were doing here was just providing a superficial atoning covering of our sin. It wasn't really removing the problem. And so what he says here in verse 9, this is the, all this is symbolic for the present age. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that, guess what? They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They can't really get to the root of the problem because it's all superficial. But these sacrifices deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed upon until the time of Reformation. Just things of the flesh. Just a superficial uh, atoning kind of covering because it's all pointing to a day when the true Redeemer is going to come and rescue us from all that. And so this old co- covenant is limited, it's restricted, and it's ineffective. In fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, he says this about the law. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So it's it's not even possible. No one is made right with God through the law. That's not the purpose of the law. The law wasn't given us so that, hey, you just follow these rules and you'll be fine. That's, That's not what it's for. And then he answers the question that comes up. Okay, well, then why do we have it? And he says this, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Why do we have the law? Because it shows us that we're lawbreakers. It shows us that we need help. 
The law points to our need for a Savior to rescue us. And so the law is given not to provide a way, like, hey, if you just keep all the commandments, you just do all the right things and you do it right, you'll get there someday. No, the law is given as a tutor, as a guide to teach us that you and I break the law and we need somebody to, to keep it for us. We need some help. And so you go, what, what in the world? Like, I'm not tempted to do this, right? You're not, in our day, like we, we see this stuff and the lampstand and the sacrifices and the altar and the mercy seat. We don't have that. That's, the, the writer of the Hebrews is writing to a group of people who, that was their temptation. They were tempted to turn away from faith in Jesus and go back to this, to this, these religious practices in Judaism. That's what they were tempted to do. But you and I, that's not our temptation. None of you, I'm, I'm guessing, okay, but none of you are probably tempted to sacrifice any animals, right? Even if you have cats, you're probably not tempted to do that. That's not our temptation. But man, in our culture, where we live, in, in Bible Belt, good old boy theology, the, the, the common mindset is, hey, man, just be good. Just do good things. Be a good person. Do the right thing. Go to church. Every now and then serve in the children's ministry and you'll be fine. Like the, the, the theology is still the same. It's like let's do these things and earn our way to God. And all that is, is it's ineffective. It will never get you there. It's impossible. No one's made right by doing things or keeping the law or, or, or jumping through enough hoops. That's not what the law was given to us for. Now, it's a guide. It's a standard. If we live by it, our lives will be better. But the law ultimately was given to show us that we need help. And so the, the old covenant through the law, it's limited, restricted. We don't have full access to God. And it's ineffective in meeting our biggest need. We need our conscience, our minds, our hearts, and not just a surface level atonement. We need forgiveness that will set us free. And so he does all this to set up where he's going with us to point us to the new covenant. And he and talks about the new covenant that comes through Christ's blood. The old, the old covenant came through the law. And the new covenant, the law is pointing us to Jesus. The new covenant comes through Jesus' blood. Specifically, that's what he's doing. So I want you to look at verse 11 where we were reading uh, today. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the real holy place, not just the shadow, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so the new covenant comes through Christ's blood. His blood shed on our behalf. His blood poured out to make us right with God. That's the new covenant that Christ offers us. It's not a, hey, do all these things. It's Christ did it for us. He shed his blood for us. And so the new covenant through Christ's blood, first and foremost, it secures our eternal redemption. It secures for us eternal redemption. And when you really start studying what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. In the Bible, you see these images that the, the, the Scripture gives us of what Jesus accomplished for us. And these images come from these words that are just full of meaning. And words like propitiation, uh, which you know, Kai was talking about that last week, that the, all this sacrifice is pointing us to this idea of propitiation, that God's wrath has been evoked because of our sin and our rebellion. And he's a holy God, and he will punish sin. And so Jesus steps in our place and takes on the wrath, he bears the wrath of God on our behalf, and God's wrath is satisfied because he poured it out on his son instead of us. And so we're made right with God because Jesus took our punishment. That's propitiation. His, his death on the cross satisfied the wrath of a holy God. 
And then there's justification, another image scripture gives us, so that God is the judge, the holy judge of the whole world, declares us not guilty of sin. Not because we're not guilty, but because Jesus paid the price and because he gave us his righteousness, God looks at us through Jesus and says not guilty because Jesus did it for us. Reconciliation, that we're made right with God. We were separated, cut off, and we're relationally restored to God. We're peace with God as possible because what Jesus Christ did for us, we're reconciled back to God. And so those are some of the other images that you see in Scripture. And here in this passage, he points to redemption. And redemption has a different picture that comes with it. Redemption is a picture of a captive that someone comes along and purchases their freedom. The word redemption here literally means ransomed. That someone paid a price to set us free. That some, someone's a captive or someone's a slave and someone comes along and purchases their freedom and sets them free. That's what redemption is. That's the picture that the author is giving us. And it's interesting because he went through and talked about the manna and he talked about the the, the staff that budded, he talked about the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, all that stuff was pointing Israel back to how God had redeemed them out of slavery. He had got them out of Egypt, and he did that with his mighty, strong, right, outstretched arm. Like God redeemed Israel, he rescued them out of slavery, and then he led them through the wilderness, he provided for them, he was patient with them, for his glory he did all that, and they finally put them in the promised land. Like he was doing that all for his people, and everything in the Ark of the Covenant is kind of pointing back. Remember God did that? Remember how he redeemed you? Remember how he set you free? And it's also pointing to the fact that Jesus is going to come and redeem us ultimately, once and for all, that we need that kind of help. And, and that's what redemption such a beautiful picture in our Bible, but there's kind of two sides of that coin. One is it, it focuses on our need. It speaks a word about our need, that we were captive, that we were enslaved to sin, and we had no chance of breaking those shackles. We had no chance of freeing ourselves. There's nothing you and I could do to set ourselves free. We are captives, and we needed someone to come and rescue us. It's, this idea of redemption, it just, it flies in the face of the whole good old boy, yet you can do this. No, no, it, it speaks about our need for a rescuer. The Bible says that the cross, the story of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. And one of the reasons why it's a stumbling block to the Jews is the Jews were trying to earn their way to God and the cross says, you can't do it. The cross says it's impossible. There's no one ever going to be made right by earning their way to God and the cross speaks this word that you were, you and I were completely cut off and we were captive to sins and we needed somebody to set us free or we'd still be stuck in our sin. So redemption talks about our need and on the other side of redemption coin, it talks about the price that was paid to redeem us. The ransom price. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, to lay his life down. And so in 1 Peter, it talks about the fact that we were ransomed and we were set free, not with perishable things like gold and silver, as much value as we think that those have. We were set free by the ultimate price, the precious blood of Jesus. That's the price that God paid to set us free. We were desperately caught and trapped in our sin, and Jesus purchased our freedom with his blood. The, the whole thing that he's talking about here is like, if that, if that old system provided some kind of covering here, some kind of superficial covering, how much more will Christ cover everything? 
If, if that was doing something and helping them a little bit, just day to day, year to year, how much more will Jesus' blood set us completely free eternally? It's an eternal redemption. Our sins in the past, our sins right now, and our sins in the future, all taken care of by Jesus' death on that cross. And the price that was paid was his blood. Now, if you think about this, how, how, do, you, how do you determine how much something is worth? And there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of different ways to answer that question. But ultimately, what you do is you think, okay, how much is somebody willing to pay for it? How much is somebody willing to give for it? If you take away all the kind of peripherals and just say, okay, this thing is worth however much I can get somebody to pay for it. That's how you really determine how much something's worth. And I know a lot of you know me and you know me pretty well. And so this is going to be kind of shocking to many of you that I'm really into art. Like, I'm... I've, I've always been into art. I really love art. I love fine art. And I know that you don't think that of me most of the time when you think of me, but I, I do. I like to collect art. And I wanted to bring a piece of my art collection to show you today because I wanted to try to show, show you what this means because art is such a good way. Like, how do you determine how much something is worth? Well, it's how much something's will, somebody's willing to pay for it. So you have art that, oh, this, this painter did this or this was done in this time. There's only this many copies. Those are some of the things. But ultimately, it's like, how much are you willing to pay for this piece of art. So I brought one of my favorite pieces in my collection. I don't know if you've seen this before. This is, a, this is my kind of art right here. I don't know if you know what this is. This is Nolan Ryan welcoming Robin Ventura to Texas. Uh, there's no title on the frame, but it should be titled, Don't Mess With Texas. That's what this should be titled. And it's a, it's a fantastic story. If you, if you don't know the story of Nolan Ryan, and Robin Ventura, you should Google it and watch the video. It's great. Somebody told me after the first service that this, Robin Ventura is the only person to ever get five hits off of Nolan Ryan. So um, fun fact about this, this piece of art here is that Tammy and I, my wife and I, were at this game when this happened. Yeah, it was as awesome as you can imagine. I mean, we all lost our minds. It was absolutely incredible, like watching Nolan Ryan welcome Robin to Texas um, with his fist. It was, it was an incredible moment. And, um, yeah, the, I, I just looked it up this morning. It was 30 years ago when that happened, and it was right before she and I got married. We're about to be, have been married 30 years pretty soon. That's pretty crazy, um, and it makes me feel old in a lot of ways. But if I was going to auction this off today, and I'm not, I'd just start the bidding. And some of you wouldn't, you wouldn't even bid because you don't care. There's, like, you don't, you don't like Nolan Ryan, or you don't, you don't care about the Rangers. I mean, some of you in here are, Astros fans. I mean, some of, like, some of you don't like baseball or you don't know the story. You're just like, no, I don't care. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to bid on that. Some of you wouldn't bid at all. And some of you would be in a bidding war immediately. You're like, I want that. I had somebody tell me he's going to just take it home today. I'm like, no, you're not. You see the picture? Like, that's what's, no. Um, but how much this is worth, it would be determined by the highest bidder. How, how much somebody's willing to pay for something is how you determine how much is something's worth? You take away all the other things and you go, okay, how much will you pay for that? How much are you worth? How, how, where do you find your value? Redemption says that God was willing to sacrifice his son, his blood shed, to make us right with him. Because there was no other way. There was no other hope for us. And in a world where we're looking for value and worth everywhere, 
if I can be in this group or in this circle or have this job or have this success or live in this place or whatever, like we look at our value and our worth everywhere else. Redemption says God has declared your worth. God has declared your value that he was willing to sacrifice his son for you. So this redemption truth, man, it's, it's good for eternity, but it's good for every single day. Where do you find your value? Where do you find your worth? It, it comes from the fact that God loves you that much. He loves us this much. So this redemption idea, I mean, it's so important, and it, and it, it should be enough. But the Bible, God knows it's, it's not really enough, and so it goes even a step further. And, and here's, why, here's why it's not enough, because we have our conscience that's constantly having this battle with us and trying to speak a different word to us than what God's word is speaking to us. And so here's, here's, what, here's what the new covenant through Christ's blood does. It secures our eternal redemption, but it also goes a step further and it purifies our consciences. It sets us free and cleanses us, heart, mind, soul, body, everything. It covers everything. It's not superficial. It's not just on. It's every single part of you it cleanses. And this idea of our conscience is always telling us something about ourselves. And here's the blood of Jesus that's speaking a better word than what our conscience is speaking to us. Our conscience is telling us the truth, but Jesus' word, his blood, speaks a better word. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers ever, uh, was talking about the problems revealed by our conscience on this passage, and he, he, he listed three. I think it's really helpful. The first is that we have knowledge of past sins. Our conscience is constantly reminding us of how many times we messed up. It's always doing that. It's pointing out things. Who do you think you are? Who do you, you think God really wants you? Look at all you've done. Look at how many times you've blown it. Look at how many ways you've messed up. And it's constantly pointing a finger and saying, you don't belong here because you've messed up so many times. Our conscience is constantly telling us that. Um, our world today is trying to suppress that with everything it has. The culture that we live in says, hey, you know what? Deep down, I kind of feel like something's not right, and so I'm going to reject all that to make myself feel better. I'm going to reject that there's a God because I don't think I'm right with him, so I'll just, I'll just act like he doesn't exist. That's because we're suppressing our conscience. I'll, I'll go a step further, and I'll say there's no right and wrong. Just do whatever you want to do. That's a suppressing of our conscience. The deep down we know things aren't right, and I'm not right. I've messed up. I've blown it, and our conscience is always speaking that word to us. It's also that... It's reminding us that there's, or giving us knowledge of our sinful nature. It's not just that we've got sins behind us in the past, but it's like right now, right here, we're struggling with sin. We're tempted all the time. We take one step forward and two steps back because we blow it again. We mess up again. We fall again. And we have to get up constantly, dust ourselves off, and turn back to Jesus, put our faith back in him. We wander. We drift. All those things. And so because we have sinful natures and we're in this battle, our conscience will tell us over and over again, you don't measure up. You don't belong. God doesn't want you. All those things. And Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that constantly speaks a better word. Here, here's the deal. If you're, if you're a Christ follower in this room today and you find that you're still struggling with sin and you're still giving in sometimes to the same sins that beset you for a long time, here's what the Bible would call you. A normal Christian. Like, sin's a struggle. 
until we are in heaven and glory forever. Like it's always there. It's always a temptation. We're always fighting that battle. And it's a move forward, move back. It's day by day from one degree of glory to another, moving a little bit closer to Christ and becoming a little bit more like him. And, and, and there's setbacks and there's failures all along the way. It's just a normal part of this thing. And our conscience will tell us, no, you've blown it and you continue to blow it and you don't. And Jesus' blood purified us from that, cleanses us from that, set us free from that. And the last thing he said was that it's, it's revealing that there's ongoing contact with evil in this world. That it's, we're surrounded by it. The world is shoving an agenda down. You can't even watch a show. That's a, the good shows now, they're just shoving some kind of agenda in there all the time. And we're just being, it feels like we're being stained by the evil. We're, come, we're in a world that's depraved and fallen, and we're, it feels like we're being stained by it. And our conscience will tell us, like, you just keep getting more stained. You just keep getting messed up. Just keep, the, the world is a broken, broken place. Um, I, and our conscience will tell us that that disqualifies us somehow. That God wouldn't want us somehow. I was, but as... Between services today, I got a text um, from my mom, and my niece was at a party last night in Jasper, Texas, and there was a guy that came in with a ski mask and shot nine of the kids today. Uh, I got that message today about last night. My niece is fine. All the kids are so far in the hospital, but, like, evil's around us all the time. This is the world that we live in. It's in our face all the time. And if you listen to your conscience, it'll tell you that God doesn't want any part of that. He's putting the curtain back up. You don't come. No, no. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that. And what Jesus' death on the cross does, it sets us free. Every single part of us, our minds, our hearts, everything, it set us free from all of that. He purifies our conscience. Our conscience tells us what we think about ourselves. But the blood of Christ tells us what God thinks of us in Jesus. And it's a better word. It always is. I want you to hear, hear this quote, and I want you to see this quote by Richard Phillips. I found it so helpful. If you like taking pictures of the quotes, get your, get your phone out. He says, think of the most terrible thing you've ever done, the dark secret that haunts your nights, the great truth that if people really knew, they would condemn you out of hand. God, who knows that secret and who does see that sin, has placed it upon his own son so that you will not be condemned. Therefore, Paul says in Colossians 2.16, do not let anyone pass judgment on you. And then Philip says, no, not Satan, not even yourself. You have been made clean by the blood of the lamb. This redemption is more than sufficient for everything, every part of us, not just our eternity, but every single day setting us free to believe a better word, to believe the truth that God has declared our value and our worth. Now, I don't want you to miss this last part because it's kind of like this is where it's all going. And the last part of this passage in verse 14, he says this phrase, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works, why? To serve the living God. And so the last thing that he says here is that a new covenant through Christ's blood also sets us apart to serve God. There's a purpose behind this. Our redemption is so good for us. Our redemption is so, brings so much joy that we know that it's secured for eternity. 
our conscience has been cleansed and purified and it's been removed from us. All that's so good for us, but it's not just for us. It's so that we can now live a life to serve him, so that we can now live a life to glorify him, join him on mission, all those things. That's why he's redeemed us. We're redeemed and part of his family so that we can join in his work. And if you're not serving him, if you're not following him, if you're not living to glorify him, then you're pursuing dead things that won't satisfy you, won't give you meaning, fulfillment, all the things that will never fulfill you. It's dead works. But when you serve him and you make your life's purpose to bring glory to him that no matter what you do becomes something with meaning because it's he set you free to do that he sets you free to follow him and pursue him like that to set us apart to serve God um, we, we tell you all the time we want you to follow our social media accounts so you'll stay connected to us throughout the week if you're not following our Crosspoint students account, I really would encourage you to follow our Crosspoint students. Even if you don't have teenagers, like follow Crosspoint students because they, they do some fun stuff, but they do some really good stuff. And when they teach on Wednesdays, uh, they'll put on Instagram a post that kind of recaps the teaching. And last week, our Crosspoint youth were walking through the story of Daniel in the lion's den, and they posted post a recap, and one of the screens I was scrolling through, it, one of the screens just grabbed a hold of me because it was so in line with what we're learning here. And this is what it said on the on the post said, so God gives us the ultimate blessing of Jesus so that we can bless the nations and make his name great. Well, he said it in one sentence, what I've been trying to say for 30 minutes. <laughs> God gives us the ultimate blessing of Jesus, not just for you and me, but so that we can then bring that blessing to everyone else, all the nations, all the earth, for his glory. If you're not serving, you're, you're missing you're missing out. You, you're ready to serve, join in, get connected, help around. Like, come on, let's go. Come talk to us. Because if you're not serving, you're missing out on the life that God has called us to. And he has set us free. His redemption, his blood has set us free with eternal redemption. Purified our conscience and set us apart to serve him and to make much of him and bring him glory forever. Let's thank him for that. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this truth from your word. Thank you for redemption. That part, that aspect of the cross, it reminds us that we were captive, captive to our sin, enslaved to it, and we had no chance of getting free. Jesus, you laid down your life. Your blood was poured out. Your blood was shed as a ransom to purchase our freedom. And when, when we put our faith in you and put our trust in you, Jesus, you set us free to serve you and live the life that you've called us to. And so we thank you for that. Help us to embrace that truth and help us to embrace the life that you want for us. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.